0: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm talking with healthcare and business attorney, Scott Weevil, about considerations for either a new build or buying into an established surgery center and things to think about for a physician who's going to be an equity owner for the first time. As we talked about last week, buying into an ASC opens up a whole bunch of complexities that need to be addressed in conjunction with a team of experts. Nothing that follows today should be construed as legal advice. Even though we're talking about legal concepts, you should definitely have your own attorney look over any surgery center purchase that you're considering. But hopefully today's conversation will let you know about some of the important legal concepts and moving parts so that you can be a savvy investor as you think about how to build and grow your own medical practice. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm here with my friend, attorney Scott Weevil. Scott is a healthcare and business attorney based in Lake Tahoe and has been a really valuable resource for myself as well as my clients in the past. I've really enjoyed working with him. He has, diverse experience with practice M&A, equity buy-in, employment agreements for physicians, setting up practices, regulatory, intellectual property, all kinds of things. He's just one of those guys that's like a great person to know. So I'm glad that <laughs> glad that I've been introduced to Scott. Scott, thanks for being here today.
1: Justin, thanks so much for having me, and I really appreciate that effusive introduction. I hope I can live up to being quite that helpful.
0: Of course. Uh, so today we're going to talk about Uh, legal considerations as it relates to surgery centers. So last week, we talked with a uh, a tax expert about many of the tax considerations. Being a business owner, it creates a bunch of complexity on both the legal and the tax side of things. Today, we're gonna talk about from a legal standpoint and a regulatory, to some extent, standpoint, what does it mean to be a surgery center owner and what are some things that you need to be thinking about? So talk a little bit, Scott, to start us off about the kinds of uh, interactions you've had with some of your clients who have had surgery center considerations.
1: Sure. So for a lot of my clients that are in certain specialties that are and we'll get into this that are amenable to surgery center ownership, one of the things that happens when you join a private practice in conjunction with making partner in that practice, one of the advantages is also being able to invest or co-invest with the current partners in a surgery center if they have a surgery center or surgery centers that they're affiliated with. And that often goes in tandem with real estate investments too, whether that's the underlying uh, real estate for the surgery center or for the practice offices themselves. So that's basically my background. I've also had clients that have formed surgery centers. um, um, And so that's a a whole different process. But in the main, I think most of the work that I do is pretty much pertains to folks buying into existing surgery centers.
0: So describe, maybe take us through the, I, I think this is a really interesting sort of like life cycle consideration. So you become a partner to practice, maybe that practice has a surgery center, or maybe there's another independent surgery center nearby. And that question of surgery center ownership uh, sort of comes onto your radar as a physician. So talk a little bit about if somebody walks into your office and says, I just you know, became a partner of my practice, I'm thinking about a surgery center. What types of questions are you asking them? Or how are you encouraging them to sort of configure themselves legally to make sure that they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's?
1: For sure. So I think the main questions are essentially um, economic, and I know that's something that you definitely help with looking at what the buy-in price is what you're going to get out of that buy-in price through distributions or otherwise over the life of the investment. And then the third big financial milestone is what happens when you exit the surgery center investment. How is that handled and what's the purchase price there? And then on the legal side, we're also looking not only at regulatory issues, but again, with an economic bent, we're looking at the terms of how you pay that initial buy-in as well as requirements for distributions and other money. And if anything is taken um, from the top before you receive that, in other words, if there is there a management fee? Is there a, an additional percentage taken by founders of the surgery center? So is the pot a little bit sweeter for the initial physician investors than it will be for you? And if so, is that warranted? And then um, what you end up getting pro rata at the end of that. So I think that plus the terms and conditions under which you you can be forced to sell your shares back to the surgery center are the main things I look at from sort of a legal economic perspective.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, you know, everything does come down to the economics, the legal informs economic implications. And that's why the legal is important. I think you make a great point there. So talk about you, you brought up a great point, like the exit strategy. And you might think like, I'm, I'm only considering buying in. Why do I have to know what the exit strategy is? But it's very important to understand uh, it really does affect everything, including like buy-in valuation and the way that you're thinking about the business. So talk a little bit about, um, the different exit strategies that you see and, the way that that sort of frames the way you look at a particular opportunity.
1: For sure. So, before we get to exit strategy, just to lay the groundwork, you're not buying a Wall Street traded company. So, your ownership in a surgery center is essentially going to be illiquid. And even if it, there were liquidity somehow, in general, the governing documents for the surgery center is going to prohibit you from transferring your shares. So, generally, the only way you're allowed to get out of the surgery center investment is through selling your shares back to the surgery center. That can be established in a bunch of different ways. For the most part, you're not actually gonna have an option to just put your shares to the surgery center at will. You know, what most typically happens upon exit is you're gonna end up leaving the practice. And if you leave the practice, that's many times gonna trigger the surgery center's ability, maybe not, uh, it may not be a mandatory thing, but their ability, if they choose, to repurchase the shares from you. Um, and so that's when we look at the purchase price. Also, in the event that there is an exit, uh, meaning that the surgery center perhaps sells um, to a larger chain of surgery centers in a roll-up or something like that. In those instances, you also wanna look at what would happen um, to your ownership interest and how you would get paid.
0: There's a couple different ways that a surgery center can, uh, a buy-in can commence. And one would be like a new build. Uh, I'm going into a surgery center, I'm a physician, I've got a handful of other physician friends, maybe there's a management company that's a part of this. Can you talk about how you would help a physician understand this circumstance and how it's different from, you know, you're the 37th partner physician at a well-established surgery center, which is totally different.
1: Sure. So it's very akin to, you know, starting your own practice versus joining a practice, I would say, you know, obviously if you're starting a new surgery center from the ground up, you have certain legal things that you need to get in place. Obviously you need to you need to be compliant with the anti-kickback statute and start. I may occasionally call the anti-kickback statute AKS. So if I slip into that, that that's what I'm talking about. Um, you need ways to contract with your management organization. If you're going to have one, you need ways to give privileges and credential your providers at the surgery center. So those are all things that hopefully would be in place in an existing surgery center. And then if you slip into the, um, on the financial front, you know, obviously, if you're buying into an existing center that's had uh, significant operations before you buy in, you sort of have a financial track record, so you know what you're likely to get back as far as returns. Um, whereas, if you're starting a new surgery center, that's going to be a lot more speculative. But as I sort of mentioned earlier, a lot of times the pot is sweetened for the founders of surgery centers. So along with that increased risk does come some reward if things do pan out. So that's, you know, obviously one thing to look at. And again, very similar with starting your own private practice in medicine, that the risk is correlated
0: with the reward. So if you have an opportunity for a new build and, you know, you get approached and it's like a $30,000, you know, you throw it in up front and you, you get a... Whatever twelve percent slice of this pie that gets divided between a handful of docs, um, how are you assessing, or how are how would you help one of your clients assess like thirty k or whatever the number is? Like it's not based on anything, it would seem. So how do you how do you vet an opportunity like that and assess the the value? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I I am the first to um, defer to my financial and tax counterparts. So I will always do that. And there's certainly practice. Um, consultants and surgery center consultants who specialize in this sort of thing. They analyze the market and they do projections and things like that. So I think that's one way to look at it. But I think at the end of the day, you really have to base it possibly initially, especially if you're one of those initial founders, just based on the startup capital needs. And those are gonna be what they're gonna be. And so if you're gonna have to put in among a few doctors, a hundred thousand worth of equity or what what have you, whatever that number is, and then get lending on top of that, your proportionate share is probably gonna correspond to the equity sort of as you would expect. But I definitely think it is important to bring in the financial professionals there who can usually be engaged for quite a minimum cost compared to the cost of your investment and really give you some clarity on how how things work and I would counsel folks I've seen I've seen I've had clients go down the wrong road on this before that just because somebody in your family or a friend is a business expert whether they're an MBA or an investment banker or what have you you're really looking for expertise in the particular industry and so I think it's still important while while you can certainly lean heavily on that family member or friend to interpret what the what your industry specific consultant is giving you I think it is very important to have someone with experience in the particular area in this case ASCs
0: When someone is setting up ownership for a new opportunity do you generally recommend setting up an entity in order to hold those shares? And what are the pros and cons of that? For
1: sure, usually for the most part, the surgery center will actually be owned by an LLC in almost all states. Um, and you definitely want, you, you certainly don't want a partnership or anything like that. It is it is a healthcare facility, so you do want limited liability for all of the owners. So yeah, that's a great question, What you're actually looking at, if you're buying into a surgery center, you're gonna be buying a unit or a membership interest in an LLC. That actually owns the surgery center. And so that LLC will have what's called an operating agreement. Um, Most of the time, some states may be an LLC agreement. It's what it's called. It really doesn't matter. But that's essentially the governing document that's going to set up how the LLC is run, both from an internal corporate governance perspective, and also touch on all those economic implications like we were speaking about.
0: I've seen different circumstances where, you know, in order to own those shares for the physician's portion, some might be held just in the name of the physician and others, they may have their, you know, Dr. Smith Ventures LLC to hold the shares of the LLC. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about, obviously that gets into like down like tax planning rabbit holes and others, but from a... I guess like legal infrastructure and liability, is there like additional protection or is that worth it? Or is it just like an extra thing to keep track of?
1: Right. In general, I think it's an extra thing to keep track of. The LLC itself already provides the shield um, or whatever. If it happens to be a corporation, Um, if it's a partnership, yes, get your own LLC. Although, I've never seen a surgery center as a a general partnership. Um, But I do recommend, you know, obviously if you're doing other things that may suggest that you need that entity, then sure it can make sense to have that entity hold the shares. For instance, if you're doing expert witness um, work or things like that, or you work um, in some capacity as an independent contractor and for that reason you already have an entity set up because your counterparty or you wanna have one, then for sure that's fine to hold the shares. But in general, that just adds a little bit extra layer of complexity it
0: doesn't really add. I know that uh, there are certain states regulated by the CON certificate of need rules. And this is uh, it, it significantly impacts the dynamics of surgery center existence ownership, how easy it is to open one what what hoops you need to jump through uh, in a given area. So can you talk about what do the CON rules mean? Why do they exist? And what does it mean for a potential physician owner?
1: For sure. So, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of work in CON states. So I'll just speak to what I know about this more generally. But basically, the CON framework is essentially certain states have rules that before you can open a surgery center, you have to show that there's actually a need for one beyond the existing healthcare facilities. And we're typically talking about hospitals with that. And so it does create a regulatory hoop for you to jump through before you own surgery center. So obviously, in those states, you see a fewer surgery centers for sure, but states also vary as far as the strictness with which they evaluate need. So in many states, it's almost a formality. Um, in other states, it is looked at with more scrutiny.
0: And so you're in California. California, it sounds like, is not a CON state? right? Okay. And so that probably results in a proliferation of surgery centers much more per capita than other places?
1: Right. And, and uh, my understanding is most states at this point are not C O N states. So I, there there are a few, um, more than a few is you probably know, over ten for sure. Um, but yeah, it does complicate things in those states. But typically, if you are joining an existing surgery center, then you will find that they've already obtained that certificate of need. So that's and that's the case for most clients. So that's typically not a concern unless you're starting one from the
0: I want to talk for a minute about the the legal structure around uh, the surgery center, the business of the surgery center, and then there's sometimes separate considerations in the real estate, the, the building and the dirt on which the surgery center sits. And sometimes physicians have an opportunity to participate in, participate in both. Sometimes it's just one. So can you talk a little bit about you know you just mentioned the LLC probably is that the surgery center is owned by an LLC. Is there generally do you see like a separate entity owning the building, and if there are other perhaps related businesses are those generally separate entities and any considerations for a physician who's coming into a business opportunity and thinking like what should i how should i think about the other entities involved in all of what this ASC means
1: For sure. And obviously, we're lawyers, we love to make this all complicated. But there's typically reasons or at least justifications that we provide for making things complex. And where I'm going with that is typically you would see different entities. Um, And again, to use the practice analogy, most of the time, if a physician owns both their practice and the building, those are going to be separate entities. And one of the main reasons for that is to insulate the liability. In other words, the surgery center itself is much more likely to be brought into some sort of malpractice action than the real estate holding entity. And that way, if if the um, surgery center is subject to a malpractice judgment or something of that nature, then you have the actual real property that's remote from that. And another reason to do that too, just for financial reasons apart from... Um, Apart from the liability reasons is, you know, you may not want to sell the surgery center and the underlying property in tandem. So it gives you the ability to get liquidity on one side without necessarily um, having to decouple it from the other. If you want to sell your building but maintain the surgery center with a lease with the new owner, you can for sure do that. And obviously, um, probably the pool of potential purchasers of medical real estate is quite a bit bigger than the pool of potential purchasers for surgery centers. So in a lot of instances, it does make sense to do that separation. And the, the third entity that you'll often see is the management entity, if you do choose to have a management company run your surgery center. So that'll be yet another entity in which the physician may or may not be invested.
0: Interesting. So for that third entity, um, is that usually a company that is created for the purpose of running the surgery center LLC? Is that what you're describing?
1: Yes, correct. And it really depends on the nature of of the center. A lot of times that'll be the same. Um, You won't see that entity in a smaller surgery center, but a lot of times you will have management companies that are responsible for the management of multiple surgery centers. And for sure, a lot of these companies are private equity backed. And so that'll be a feature of many of the many surgery center deals that are private equity backed is that you will have a management company that oversees, you know, dozens and dozens of surgery
0: centers. Interesting. Yeah. Most of the deals to which I've been exposed, you know, the physician has the opportunity to buy into the surgery center LLC, and then some of the time, maybe real estate, but seldom is there a third entity in which they are allowed to participate. I don't know what your experience is with that.
1: I would say that's definitely true for the um, PE-backed management companies because that's their sort of piece of the financial pie would be that management company. So yes, a lot of times equity is not on tap for that or on offer rather, but you would see, you sometimes see it for smaller, more local management companies that the position is given the state.
0: So you said there's not necessarily a reason to create an entity to own the ASC LLC shares if you're just a physician and you're just operating there and you just own it and it is what it is cuz you get the protection from the um, from the surgery center LLC itself is, would you say this is also true in the case of a uh, a real estate LLC where you know if there's a couple entities and one owns the building and you own 25% of that one as well is it the same thing where you can own it in your name no big deal or obviously this is it depends if you have a bunch of real estate, maybe there's other considerations as far as taxes and uh, optimizing your personal financial plan, but is there a reason if it's your first surgery center and you're buying into a building, is that okay to hold that LLC in just your name as well? Or are there any other things to think about there?
1: No, I I think that's the exact same rationale. And so it is fine to hold those directly. And I will subject this to everything you just said about tax planning. And obviously, if you have a good trust in the state's lawyer with a plan, there may be reasons to put to actually hold those interests in trust instead of directly. But from a corporate law perspective, there's no need just to have another LLC between you and your ownership in the other LLC.
0: Talk a little bit about the stark and anti-kickback statutes that you mentioned before. And as you're a physician entering into this realm of surgery center ownership, what types of landmines might await a physician who's, uh, who's doing this for the first time?
1: For sure. So basically, a lot of this will be sort of embodied in the operating agreement for the surgery center, because obviously, the existing owners want to make sure you're compliant, And then when you join, you want to make sure that the existing owners are compliant with the rules. Basically, I think what really impacts here is the anti-kickback statute. And the anti-kickback statute basically prevents physicians from receiving anything of value in exchange for referrals for things that are paid for by government payers, such as Medicare um, and Medicaid. If you step back, some of the states do have many AKS statutes that may take away the Medicare Medicaid requirement and apply to payments from any payer. So in in states like that, all surgery centers are going to fall under this, basically. In, In other states, it's only surgery centers that are providing items of service that are paid for by those government payers. But in truth, that tends to be most surgery centers. And so the problem you have here is you're a physician in your office. You take a patient to do a procedure at your surgery center. You've then referred them to your surgery center because you have a financial relationship as an owner of the surgery center. You're now getting receiving something of value in exchange for that referral. So to get around this, there are a number of safe harbors. It essentially depends like if it's a senior single specialty surgery center, a multi-specialty surgery center or something like that. Um, the safe harbors change a little bit, but one of the elements they all have in common is basically this one third of income test, which is called sort of the extension of practice requirement. So, the theory of why this is okay under the anti kickback statute is basically that the surgery center functions just as an extension of your office practice. You're just going to go next door, across the street, across town, what have you, so that you can do this procedure. And that's for sure something that. um something that the law isn't disinclined to disfavor. So, um, or isn't inclined to disfavor. So we have a, a, a sort of a safe harbor that you can fit within to establish that it is an extension of your practice. One third of your income from medical practice needs to come from the surgery center. Now there's, it's a little bit unsettled about what exactly that one third of your medical practice means, you know, on the face of it, I think you could make a pretty strong argument that that means of your in-office clinical practice, of your procedural practice, of everything. However, there are also arguments that naturally you should segment it. It doesn't make sense that basically only one-third of procedures that you would do at a surgery center or would be eligible for that should be done at a surgery center. So that's a little bit unclear right now, but you'll often see that in governing documents. And I know we've talked about this in the past. You often see requirements that you can only be invested in up to three surgery centers. And I think obviously one of the reasons for that is no matter how how that um, sort of those ambiguities were to play out, obviously if you're invested in four surgery centers, you can't be achieving one third of your income from each of those four. The math just doesn't work out. So that's one of the main things under the AKS to keep an eye on.
0: Any other uh, like interesting one-off considerations or state-specific rules, or maybe talk a little bit about California because I know I have a handful of clients who are either out there or are heading out there. And uh, there's just a ton of doctors that live there. Obviously, huge systems and uh, many people in general, and doctors to serve them. So, what's the what's the climate like where you practice? For sure,
1: California is an interesting state for a lot of reasons. Um, we do have pretty strong corporate practice of medicine restrictions in California, which overall has meant that although we do see some, the, the private equity interest out here isn't nearly what it is back east and even in the Midwest. So there's a little bit of less of that going on. A lot of the surgery centers out here are actually physician Basically physician-directed, meaning they own physicians on the majority stake, and they sort of control the operations of the center. But it's a real patchwork of um, regulation out here. Essentially, the California Department of Public Health has been stripped by a court case of its jurisdiction to license physician-owned surgery centers. So oddly, physician-owned surgery centers are subject to no licensing requirements in the state of California. Um, But... If anesthesia is required in the surgery centers, it sort of puts you in this in this weird limbo where anesthesia can only really general anesthesia can really only be administered in licensed surgery centers, so it creates this this interesting um interesting dynamic where if you are going to be doing general re- procedures that require general anesthesia beyond you know local or nerve blocks that you do need to be licensed so there's this just multiplicity of um of agencies that regulate the surgery center, depending on actually what you're going to do. So like a lot of things in California is complicated.
0: Interesting. It's not hard to imagine. This is another one of those. I don't want to say tail wagging the dog because obviously there's reasons for these rules, but it's not hard to imagine, you know, clinical decision-making being drawn along regulatory lines in this way. In particular, if you can, you know, you can do a block, but you can't do general like that, that has implications for your patient's experience and the things you can do and can't do. So it's just for sure. fascinating to think about. What other, is there anything else, Scott, as far as, uh, you know, the, the legal considerations for surgery center purchase and ownership, or, or perhaps liquidation that um, we haven't yet mentioned that are, that warrant discussion?
1: No, I, I think um, we, we've covered a lot of it, and I do think it's important, like I said, to get help, especially if it's a substantial buy-in, to get help with someone who can help you understand the economic impacts and sort of, like you said, the economic implications of the legal terms, certainly get a, get an attorney that can help you understand that, as well as just the raw evaluation piece. But I think a lot of the smaller surgery centers are set up in so many different ways. Like I said, you see it where if you buy in for 10%, you basically get 10 percent of the profits the surgery center is internally managed and that's the end of the story um, but it can also turn into where you have certain um certain folks getting multiple cuts you know if like i said if you give well, something i looked at recently that upon an exit or a buyout um, from the surgery center those founding physicians got a rate um A purchase price that was twice what a later investing physician would get and that's something to keep in mind because that's obviously going to shrink your pool if you've got you know if your surgery centers bought for you know whatever two million dollars and you got five founders who get two times um you know what you get that's going to shrink the pool that's available for later doctors so it's important to to look out for things like that and again especially if um Those folks are also also involved in the management entity. You know, they've got their hands in the pots several ways. So that's definitely something to look for in the documents. I think is stuff like that and just penalties on if you leave, because you want to make sure that obviously maybe if you quit your job um, and compete with your former practice, you would expect that to be penalized in some way. But you want to make sure just because you have to move across the country to take care of an older relative or some sort of family reason that you really just don't lose your shirt in the investment through something that's really no no fault of yours.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us and lending your expertise on this episode of APM Success.
1: Justin, for sure. And thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.